0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to tune in for our current series, Reveal Stories with Purpose, as we study the parables of Jesus, reading stories with the power to reveal God's truth in our lives. Well good morning Woodside family. So uh, thankful to be with you this morning and to worship together. My name is Jacob and I'm the campus pastor here at Farmington Hills and um, before we jump into our time of teaching this morning there's actually a couple quick things I just want to say to you. First is we are excited uh, to reopen our building for Sunday worship starting next Sunday June 28th. If you haven't gotten any information about that yet we'd love for you to sign up for our campus email list or check out our social media uh, just as we continue to update and prepare for that. Don't worry, we'll continue with online services throughout the season, so if you're not ready to come back, um, you can continue to worship with us online. We want to give lots of grace for wherever you're at in this journey as we continue to navigate this pandemic. The second thing I want to say is just a welcome to our Royal Oak Campus, who is joining with us this morning, and I know it's weird for us to have to meet this way through a screen, but I just want to tell you guys how much we love and appreciate you as part of our Woodside family, and even how grateful I am for your pastor and what he means uh, to me. And so we're glad you're with us this morning. And then the last thing I just want to say is happy Father's Day to all you fathers that are out there uh, tuning in. Uh, We love you and appreciate you. We hope today you feel celebrated and just enjoy a special uh, Father's Day. So well, this morning, we're actually going to be looking at a story about uh, a father and two sons. We're continuing in our series that we've called Revealed, where we've been looking at parables, stories that Jesus tells with a purpose in the Gospel of Luke. And so this morning, we find ourselves in Luke chapter 15. And so if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn there. And we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 32. And the parable that we come to this morning is actually a fairly well-known parable. Even if you're tuning in and you're not uh, a churchgoer or not a follower of Christ, you likely have heard of this parable. It's often referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. But if you downloaded the teaching notes for our time this morning, you might have noticed that we actually titled our sermon for this morning, the parable of the prodigal father. Now, don't worry, that's not a typo. I think it's actually what gets at the heart of this story because oftentimes in thinking, many people refer to the story as the story of the prodigal son, referring to the one son, but it's actually a story about two sons. And even more than that, it's a story about two sons in their relationship To the Father. So if you're open to Luke 15, you can actually see this right at the beginning of this story. It says this, and he said, This is Jesus speaking, there was a man who had two sons. Now, Jesus is going to begin to tell the story about a father and two sons, but he's going to do it with a very specific purpose. Remember, when Jesus tells parables, he's telling stories that really illustrate ideas about God's kingdom that would have been challenging to his audience. And so each parable that we engage reveals certain aspects about who God is, about who Jesus is, about who we are, about how God's kingdom works in the world. And so Jesus, this parable is going to begin to really illustrate for us kind of the heart of God and especially of God as a father. God is going to be pictured in this story as a father and in it he wants to really challenge our way of how we see God. A.W. Tozer, a pastor, once famously noted that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about us. I believe really what Tozer was trying to drive at in that statement is that the reality is how we conceive or picture or think about God, what we think him to be like, is really affects how we relate to God. But not only how we relate to God, how we also relate to one another and how we relate to the world. It guides or drives our entire lives. In this story, God is portrayed as a father, but the question that you want to ask from the get-go is really what kind of father is God like? What, what is he actually like? You know. Oftentimes, I think when it comes to um, really engaging the image of God as a father, many of us kind of infer or bring a lot of different ideas um, to the table of what that means. Often we're influenced by the fathers that we had growing up, whether we had a good father or a poor father uh, or bad father. Um, Sometimes we're influenced by culture's view of fathers or other images of fathers that we have seen. And so oftentimes it's easy for us to kind of project onto God our images of what a father is. or isn't, or how a father acts in response to his kids and even in response to us. But here, Jesus is going to begin to to really um, portray a completely different picture of what God looks like as a father. And it really challenges all of us because um, in this story, we not only see God as a father, we begin to see some aspects of ourselves as well. So go back to that question that I started with. What kind of father is God? And what is God's heart really like? How does he relate to us? Well, in order to answer that question, let's begin to just unpack this story together, really the story unfolds in kind of two parts. It's kind of got two acts, and we're going to look at each act and kind of uh, unpack, And, and there's a lot of detail in here that's central in Jesus' kind of ancient Middle Eastern context that we need to understand, and I think as we do, we're going to see some really key insights into how we understand who God is as our Father. So, Again, in verse 11, it picks up. There was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. So the story begins with a speech from the younger of the two sons. And he comes to the father and he essentially asked the father to give him his share of his inheritance. Now, in Jesus's day, it would have been very common when a, a, a parent passed away for their kids to receive an inheritance. Oftentimes, the oldest son would receive a double portion of the inheritance and then the younger siblings would receive the rest. And so what uh, essentially this son comes and he says, father, would you give me the one third of your estate that I am owed um, in in my inheritance? But there's a significant challenge. Actually, um, this is a really major insult to the father because to ask for your inheritance prior to the father's actual death is really to come and say, dad, I don't care about you and I don't care about your life. I don't care about our relationship. What I really just care about is your." Stuff. And so I wish you were actually dead to me and so that I could just have my inheritance. So why don't you just go ahead uh, and give that to me now? So I don't know if the, the younger son's tired of his dad's way. I don't know if he's tired of the rules. He wants to find his own journey, go his own way. But he basically comes to his dad and says, hey, dad, I wish you were dead. Can you give me my money now? And this this would have been shocking. This would have been um, very countercultural in Jesus' day. And in fact, it would have brought major shame kind of upon the family for the younger son to do that. But what we see right from the get-go of the story is actually our kind of first surprise and our first clue that something different is going on in the story that Jesus is telling. Because when the son comes and asks for this, the father would have had every right to kind of respond and rebuff him and say, no, get out of here. This is disrespectful. Why would you ask me of that? I'm not dead no, there's no way I'm doing that. He We didn't even have the right in that culture to discipline the son fairly harshly for making that sort of request. But that isn't how the father responds in this story. Look again at 12, he says, and in response to this request, and he divided his property between them. So the father essentially responds and grants the request. And this isn't just an easy request. This is a costly request. In fact, the word that we translate property here is the Greek word underneath is is the same word uh, where we get bios. It's the same idea of life or the means of life. You could say that he divided his life between them because in that day, the land was their means of life. It wasn't just their income, but even the way that they lived and sustained life. And so this was a very costly thing. The father would go and have to sell a third of his land and to give it to his his son and then used the rest to give to his older son. And so there was, so the father graciously answers. We don't know, maybe the father knew something in this situation, but he he grants the request to his son. But what happens? We'll look in 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into his far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything." Right? So the son essentially takes his money and he goes and he wastes it completely. It says he, he spent it or lived lavishly, right? Like he had that treat yourself mentality, like he was just going to use his money and enjoy life as much as he can. But a famine comes and it completely devastates him. He's left without any money and what happens is he ends up having to sell himself uh, essentially to become a servant of a Gentile pig farmer. Now this would have been hugely disrespectful. For, um, uh, for a Jew, who's the audience Jesus is writing to, to work not only for a Gentile, but to work with unclean animals such as pigs. And so what we see is the son starts out with this wealth, but he wastes it in such a way that it leaves him devastated. It leaves him at the very bottom, even outside of ritual purity for the Jewish religion. Even the food is a signal of his desperation. He has reached rock bottom. And so, but um, the reality is that most people in Jesus' audience would have had no problem with this. Right? The majority of Jesus' audience would have felt little sympathy for this guy. You disrespect your father you'd bring shame upon your family, you'd take his money and you waste it. Of course, this is exactly what you deserve. This is exactly what should happen uh, in this situation. And so, um, but the son, but the story continues on. And so in verse 17, it says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. And so the son recognizes because of the choices and his actions that the relationship has been severed. And so he comes up with this plan. I'm not going to go back as a son. But, I know my father is so gracious and kind, even to his servants, I will come back as a servant. And his expectation in returning is, I won't be able to come back and live at the house. I will go and live with the servants in their quarters. I won't be welcomed as a son, but maybe if my dad can welcome me as a servant, it will be okay. And he recognizes um, what he feels is the fundamental shift that must take place within the relationship. But again, Jesus' audience would have been completely on board with the consequences up to this point. But Jesus Jesus is about to challenge them in the way the Father responds. Look how it goes. It says, to celebrate. So what we see amazingly at the, in this story is the father responds in a way Jesus's audience never would have expected and actually shows radical, compassionate love for his lost son. The story says that the father was looking for him, that he saw him when he's a long way off. The idea is that the father just didn't happen to notice, but he was actively looking to see. And when he saw his son, it says he ran to him. Now, this is huge in the story. Older Jewish. Which men did not run, right? Children ran, young boys might have run, but older men did not run. Part of the reason is they would have worn long robes and so in order to run, they would have had to pull up those robes and show their legs, which was considered extremely shameful in that society. And so for the father to run here is to undignify himself, to become overcome with love and compassion in such a way that he's willing to undignify himself to come to his son. And I think part of the reason he runs is to meet him before the son even gets to the village. You see, the son is coming back from such a place of shame and brokenness. He just left a pig farm and traveled a great distance back to the village. And so to come back, he would have been carrying that shame and he would have been walked and the judgment that would have been heaped upon him as his return. But the father, the father at grace cost to himself, runs before the son can even get to the village while he's a long way off. And he meets him and greets him and it says he kisses him, he embraces him and shows him that love that would have been a common symbol of affection and welcome in that society. And then he calls and he says, bring a robe, bring the ring, bring shoes. And what the father does is he gives this son um, a robe that covers that shameful clothing and that becomes that symbol of covering over him. him. a ring, which likely would have been a signet ring, um, which would have carried the family seal. And so it was a sign to give to the ring of just the, the familial and fatherly trust that was being restored and shoes for his feet, that he was no longer a servant who walked barefoot, but he had shoes and was being brought into the family. And not only that, the father's so excited, he says to go and kill a fattened calf. And so uh, he wants to throw a huge party, not only just a huge party, the biggest party. To kill the fattened calf was to kill the animal that was stored up for the most important uh, event in in likely the father's life and it would have fed the whole village. And so he throws this huge party. And so what we see here in this beginning of the story is the father's response to the son's rebellion is crazy and radical and unexpected. Everyone would have expected the father to reject the son, to push him away. to make him a servant, but not even that, to to beat him, to, to, to come against him. But the father doesn't. The father responds in his son's return with love, with radical, compassionate, gracious love. And in that, we catch a glimpse of God's heart. And it's really the first thing that we need to see in this story, that the father, our father, he welcomes those that are far from him because of their rebellion. God is a God that welcomes those that are far from him, who've rebelled and turned away. God offers and brings and welcomes them back into his family. Maybe when it's come to your own relationship with God, and as you read through this first part of the story, you feel like the prodigal. You've been separated or rebelled or pushed God off. Well, You need to know that God is a God that welcomes you and desires to bring you back home. But there's actually a second act in this story as well. The first act might be called the lost younger brother, but in the second act we encounter what we might call the lost elder brother. Look at this next section that picks up in verse 25. Now his older brother was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. Now we don't really know why the son, wa- the older son, was out in the field and he wasn't in the and around the house when it came. But I think it's interesting to note that both of these sons make a journey back towards the house. And as this one comes to the house from the field, he hears the music and the celebration, obviously, and he asks about it and finds out that his uh, brother has returned. But his response to that is really interesting in this, right? It says, he was angry and refused to go in. Now, what we have to recognize that by this act, the brothers um, frustrated and angry, but this actually would have been a shameful act for him to commit, that while the rest of the family was celebrating, while the father was hosting this party, for him to not only be angry about it, but to actually refuse to come in and join it would have been incredibly shameful. And again, the father would have had every right to discipline his son at this point, to call him out for his shamefulness, and in that culture, to remove him and to discipline him because of the dishonor that he brought on the father. But again, we see the father's heart in this passage where it says in 28, his father came out and entreated him. So the father again shows his radical love and desires to bring the son in, but the son responds. He answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I've never obeyed your command, never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Now right, immediately again, we see the heart of the older brother exposed here and it's really a heart of self-righteousness, right? His first thing is to say, I've never disobeyed you. That's a little bit hard to believe but the father doesn't argue with it. He says, I've never disobeyed we, you and you've never really even given me anything. And again, we and, and not only is he self-righteous about his dad, he's also self-righteous about his brother. He says that his brother, look, this son of yours, he doesn't even refer to him as his brother, this son of yours. He comes back and he devoured all your money, wasted on prostitutes. Now what's interesting about this is earlier in the text, it never says anything about the, old, or the younger brother using his money for prostitutes. And I think what's happening is the older brother, he hasn't even spoken to his younger brother. He doesn't know what, he's, what has happened and done. He's assuming the worst about his brother in order to prop up his own righteousness. I've obeyed you, I've under, look, he wasted. He was even worse than you think he is, but I've obeyed you and you haven't done anything for me. And the older brother exposes by his anger, not only his self-righteousness, but his lack of desire of relationship for the father. You see, he... He, again, like the younger brother, he didn't care about the father. He just cared about his father's things. And he thought the best way to go about doing that was by his obedience and following the rules and doing what is right. But here, where his brother's welcome back in, where his father welcoming him and his brother might actually cost him some of his inheritance to be brought back into the home, now he's angry because he just wanted his rights, his fair share for what he earned. But the father, again, exposes his love for him. Out of the son's shamefulness, he says, in 31, he says to him, but son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. See, the father again reaches out to the son and he says, don't you realize you've always had this relationship. I've always going to give you what's mine is yours. But it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You see, the father engages the son and he again invites him. He wants him to come into the party, come into the relationship, come into his love and what he's doing and the celebration of his, the fact that he found his son. But the older brother's stuck outside. And as the story ends, we see and don't really know or left the question of his response. But I think at the end of the day, we also see what God's heart is and the father's heart in this. That even the father welcomes those that are far from him because of self-righteous religion. Right? This son was just equally as far. Just because he was close to home didn't mean his heart was truly loving the father, truly valuing the relationship. But this father still loved him and implores him to come in. See, at this point, Jesus' audience would have been on the older brother's side. But they wouldn't have recognized that what God's actually exposing here is the deeper problem. That their self-righteousness, their religion, had kept them from entering the Father's love and the Father's house. And so Jesus challenges them to say, do you see that God loves you? Will you enter into that love? See, the question we got to ask at some point is, well, what is this story really all about? And I think there's two aspects of that we need to be reminded of of what the story is about. First, it's really about all of us. When you look and recognize what Jesus is speaking to in these older and younger brothers, we have to remind ourselves of the audience that Jesus was speaking to in general. You actually see that audience in verses 1 and 2 of 15. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So you have those that in society would have been um, maybe what we would refer to as the irreligious, the people that had rejected um, the, the God's ways. And you would have had people in the society who were hyper vigilant about it. And, and, they're, um, and they're both in this picture. And Jesus pictures them really as these two brothers. The the older brother is representative of the the Pharisees and the younger brother's representative of the tax collectors and sinners. But I think also not only are those a picture of those groups, they're really a picture of all of us and how all of us relate to God. Because all of us in one way or another come to God either through oftentimes our irreligious nature or our religious nature. We either come to God out of um, a desire to be uh, of, of our own way, We reject his ways, his love, his rules. We wish he was dead. So we live our own way, do our own thing. I I think this is the heart of ear religion, right? We don't want anything to do with God's ways. We'll live however we want, I'll do my thing. I'll make what decisions are best for me. But then you also have an other aspect where we come to God out of I think a religious heart. Where God, if I obey all the rules, do all the right things, follow all the stuff, well then, then I'll get what I deserve. Every religion in the world boils down to that, to what I do to earn from God. But Jesus is saying both of these ways are wrong. Both of these ways miss God's heart. Both of these ways miss what it means to relate to him. Both of those ways try to get God's things without engaging a genuine relationship with God. And many of us, you know we're we're a mix of these two. Sometimes we think we earn what we the blessing of God because of our religion, or some of us we reject it completely, thinking, "Oh, there's no way God would ever love or bless someone like me." But at the end of the day, the question is, do we love God and do we have a relationship with Him? Because what we see in this story is that God has a radical, compassionate love for all people. In fact, if there was a big idea that I would give us in response to this passage, it would be simply this, that the heart of the Father is a heart for all. Both these sons miss it. But the father still loves them, the father still pursues them, the father still goes after them. He, he goes after the younger son and meets him a long way off to, to cover him and bring him and welcome him into the home. He goes to the older son and he implores him to come into the house, come in and join the party. God has a radical, compassionate, committed love for you and I, and he's made a way for us to be restored in relationship to him. I think that's one of the major things of this passage that we often miss, is that God has actually uh, made a way for us to be restored in relationship to him. You see, Jesus actually tells three stories in this section of parables, and they all have to do with lost things. In the first story, a shepherd loses a sheep and goes after it and finds it. In the second story, a woman loses a coin and she finds it. But in the third story, a father loses a son, but no one goes after him to find him. Well, it's curious and it's actually a point I think Jesus is trying to make to us because in Jesus' day and in his culture, the eldest son within the family, part of his role as the eldest son would have been to work to protect the honor and unity and relationship of the family. That was part of his role and so if there was a division between the father and the younger son in that culture, it would have been expected that the older son would work to restore the honor of the family and to repair that relationship. But in this parable, what Jesus is saying is that the elder brother has rejected that role. And what he's picturing there is the Pharisees in the nation of Israel. Although God had given them the role to bring people back into relationship with God, they had rejected that role. They'd become isolated and self-righteous, thinking their religion was what they were ultimately about. But what God wants to say is, you've been left out of the party. You're not coming in. You don't see it. But in many ways, it causes us to look for the greater elder brother who would actually work to restore the relationship of the father to his people and to bring us back in. And I think what Jesus is actually pointing us to is himself because he is the elder brother. He is the one who works to restore us out of our rebellion in relationship to the father. See, Jesus would say later in Luke 19 that the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. And I think even as Jesus says that, we would echo this parable in our mind that Jesus came to save those of us that were lost in our relationship with the Father, whether from our irreligion or our religion, whether from our rebellion or our self-righteousness, that he came to restore us back into relationship. And the way that Jesus ultimately does that is he goes and offers himself as a sacrifice on our behalf so he can cover our sin, remove our guilt so that we can be restored in relationship. again to defeat that sin and death so we can be in relationship with God forever. See, Jesus works so that we can be restored and we can see that the heart is of God is a heart for all. And friends, what I want you to know, no matter where you feel in fact of your relationship with God, maybe you identify with the younger brother and you feel that rebellion, you've ran from God, or maybe you've been slaving away, thinking that by being religious and doing all the right things and showing up at church and following all the rules, that that means that's ultimately what God will love you. I want you to remind you that neither of those ways are the ways to the heart of the Father, but Jesus. Jesus is the way. He's the one who restores that relationship. He's the one that brings us back into loving relationship with God forever. You know, part of the reason I love this story, because in many ways, it reminds me of my own story. You know, I grew up in uh, a Christian household. My parents taught me the truth of God's love and the way of Jesus and the gospel from a young age. And for much of my life as the oldest son, I played um, the role. I, I looked good on the outside. It did the right things. But I always had a younger brother's heart. And that became uh, more and more exposed the older I got. And into high school, I, I really, I again, looked good on the outside, but I, my heart was far from God. I might have wanted his things, but I didn't really want a relationship with him. And when the time came for me to leave and to go off to college, I thought that was my moment where I could live however I wanted. And I entered into college, like too often many kids do, um, just desiring to use it as an opportunity for my own self-discovery. And so I pursued women and I, I did drugs and I, um, Um, I didn't care about my classes. I was just going to live and enjoy life and do whatever I want. And what happened in that moment, just like the prodigal, I hit rock bottom. And I remember my freshman year of college sitting in my dorm room feeling as empty, as depressed, as far and disconnected from God as I felt. And in that moment, I had no idea. My life felt like it was falling apart. But then Jesus met me in that moment. See, the elder brother came after me and he reminded me of God's love. And he reminded me that the gospel is a gospel of forgiveness, that God would cover my sin if I would just turn to him and that I could be restored in my relationship with him. And in that moment, I found for the really, truly first time in my life, the love of God on a deep heart level and it changed everything for me and my life has never been the same. And what I want you to know this morning is that God has a heart for you and that through Jesus he wants to offer you the same thing. Maybe you're at the bottom this morning. Maybe you've recognized that all your accolades mean nothing. I don't know where you come into this conversation, but either way, God loves you. And Jesus, as your elder brother, offers you a way to be restored in relationship with him. All you have to do is put your faith in him to trust that he is the true king of the earth, that he has died for your sins in order to cover them, and that he rose again from the dead, that you might have new life, and that when you do that, when you turn from your sin and you accept Jesus, you will be enveloped within the love of God. You will be covered with the robe. You will receive the ring. You will receive the sandals upon your feet that God will pour out his blessings. He will pour out his inheritance. He will love you for all eternity, forever and ever and ever. Friends, God loves you. His heart is for you. He runs and moves towards you. And in Jesus, he just says, when you trust in him, he wants to pour it out on you that love forever and ever. I pray you would do that today. In fact, let me just pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray in this moment for all those watching whether they feel far from God or whether they've felt like they've just been following all the rules, whether they're an older brother, or younger brother, irreligious or religious, God, I pray right now you would remind them of their heart and love for them. I pray that you would move in them um, by your Holy Spirit to see the truth of Jesus, to see that he has come to pursue them and bring them back into relationship with God through his death and resurrection. I pray for faith to arise right now. God, I pray for salvation. I pray for that person right now sitting watching this screen, who's just felt so disconnected from you. I pray right now that you would help them to take that step of trusting you. And if that's you this morning, I just want to offer you a simple prayer that you can pray. You can just simply pray to God and say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the way that I've turned from you. I'm sorry that I've desired more your things than I've desired a relationship with you. But Lord, I trust in you right now. I trust in the name of Jesus. I trust that He is the King of the earth, that He is died for my sins and that he has risen again and let my life now be used to follow him. Friends, I pray that if you pray that prayer and you seek to really truly believe and walk in that, God wants to pour out his love into your life this morning. And so God, for those that are seeking, I pray, I pray that you would just envelop in them their love, that you would change them forever. And they would spend eternity enjoying your blessings and really the blessing of a relationship with you. We love you, Jesus. and We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together this week. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and to get you connected to the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself today.